Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Bill Werner takes a closer look at the recent Native American Nutrition Summit in Prior Lake. I have a replay of my exclusive chat with legendary Beach Boy Brian Wilson, who's in town this week with his band to perform the masterpiece Pet Sounds live. And Mike Grimm gives us a unique perspective on the Ryder Cup. But first, Monday's debate between Democrat Hillary Clinton and Republican Donald Trump was watched by a record 84 million viewers. It was billed as a rare primetime opportunity for two unpopular candidates to convince millions of undecided voters to back them. So which candidate came out on top? MNN's Tasha Radel takes a look. Well, Scott, it's hard to say which candidate truly won, and it really boils down to who you ask. A number of polls show Clinton was the winner, but that her performance didn't lock in those undecided voters. This undecided voter lives in the Wilmer area and says she wasn't impressed with Clinton and has decided to back Trump. Overall, I just felt like uh, she was ready to attack and he was trying to to keep his composure. Um, I was trying to kind of keep a neutral opinion on either one, but quite honestly, I agree with a lot of people I've seen on Facebook. I would have liked to have slapped her. <laughs> and can I ask she why? She just seems so smug. She seems so smug, um, very insulting. That that's, that smirk on her face was very annoying. And do you? Think- she could have tried to be a little more humble. And do you think that Donald Trump was doing his best not to do what people thought he would do and come unglued, so to speak? There's some things he just can't help. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, um, I think it's just part of his personality. He has a sense of sarcasm um, when he says things, and then it's construed as a lie. I'm, I'm not defending him. I'm just saying... I think that he was trying really hard not to get angry because she knew what buttons to push to get him angry. You could see that. Do you think a lot of the policy and issues were debated, or do you think it was more of the personal attacks of going back and forth trying to make each other mad? Um, I think they kept interrupting each other, and it kept taking away from the chance for them to cover more issues. I mean, Lester Holt said it himself that they didn't get everything done. (laughs) Anything you'd like to see come out of the second debate? Um. You know, honestly, I think that a lot of people on, like I was looking on Facebook and I I pay attention to these two women, Diamond and Silk, and they're fantastic. And a lot of people are just making more division um, from what they saw and what they they heard. Um, You know, there's a lot of places doing fact-checking. A couple things I thought were interesting is Hillary really doesn't want Trump to win, and she really doesn't want to talk about her emails, which I think is really interesting. She wants to say she made a mistake, and I think that she really should open up and talk more about that if she wants people to trust her, because I don't think a lot of people are trusting her. This Twin Cities man considers himself an independent, but admits Monday's debate sealed the deal, and he will be voting for Clinton in November. Well, you know, I approached it that I wanted to know a little more detail on policy from both uh, candidates. I was aware that Hillary has come out with all kinds of different policies and programs. I wanted a little more detail. I also looked at the debate that I, it's, you know, it was about expectations to me. So Donald Trump has a low bar 
Hillary because of her experience is a high bar, but that doesn't excuse that you don't know policy and how you should handle things. So that's what I was looking for. Donald Trump has always had a problem of kind of wandering in his answers, and he did it again last night, where he can't carry the thought through with much detail. And Hillary has so many policies that she's put out, she really just had to recite what she has posted on her website. It was much easier for her, in my opinion, because how she knows the subject matter. But Donald Trump wanders and wanders and wanders and doesn't really answer the question. He, he has a tendency to just whine about the problems of America and the problems of the world. And he has a tendency to just blame whoever was there in the past without really coming up with answers on how he, in particular, would handle it. So that's what I was looking for. And it was very obvious that she had far more uh, answers on how she would approach things than he did. Have you made a judgment on who you think the winner of last night's debate is? To me, personally, based on what I was looking for, it was easy to say that Hillary uh, won that debate just based on content. And again, in, in my mind, Hillary answered the questions. So what do Clinton and Trump need to do at their next debate? We asked Hamlin University political science professor David Schultz. I think for Clinton, it might be to give Donald Trump less openings on a variety of issues. You know, in terms of, she let him go on longer in terms of the email. I think she needs to still have a better answer about her emails. Um, I think for Donald Trump, he probably needs to have a couple of more um, sustained sort of answers on some policy issues. And then I think just for presentation aspect, he needs to fight less with, with the moderator and perhaps interrupt Clinton less. Because I think one of the other things last night that happened is that this debate reminded me a little of 19 or rather, it reminded me a little bit of the year 2000, when Al Gore um, let out those annoying sighs against George Bush when George Bush was answering, and it really hurt Al Gore here. I think with Donald Trump you know, interrupting Clinton and the moderator quite a bit, it had that same impact. And so I think he needs more discipline, and that's been one of the criticisms of Donald Trump all along, is a very undisciplined approach of going into debates or going into presentations like this. U.S. presidential debates have historically been seen as a crucial test of candidates' poise and policies. We'll see how the two candidates fare at their next debate, set for October 9th. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. More Minnesota Matters after this. Technology moves at the speed of innovation. And today, that's lightning fast. So when you get your hands on the latest tech don't forget to do the right thing with your old devices. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old tech device as easy as purchasing new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the responsible recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find lots of tips to simplify your recycling, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Television sets, video game consoles, smartphones, tablets. They're all recyclable. Don't let them clog up your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. You're sharp enough to get the latest tech tools into your home. 
Now be responsible enough to get your old devices to the recycler. That's greenergadgets.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's not a pleasant fact, but Native Americans are not as healthy as their white counterparts. Nearly 16% have type 2 diabetes, more than double the rate in the Caucasian population. Nearly one-fourth of Native American households are below the poverty line compared to 15% in the U.S. population at large. And according to a 2012 study, this is the first generation of Native American children that is not expected to outlive their parents. The goal of a conference earlier this week in prior is to identify ways of reducing those disparities, and MN's Bill Werner joins us with the report. Well, Scott, the conference, hosted by the Shakopee Mdewakanton Sioux community and the University of Minnesota, brought together hundreds of people, ranging from political leaders to activists to scientists who are trying to address what's been called a nutrition crisis in Indian country. It's billed as the first ever conference of its type. Lori Watso, chair of Seeds of Native Health, says indigenous people used to have good health and an intimate relationship with the earth and their foodways. As we encountered Europeans, or Europeans encountered us, and the access to those things changed or were taken away, you know, it changed a, a lifestyle and it changed our health. How much of this has to do with uh, just the fact that different groups of people, say indigenous people versus Europeans, I'll use as a broad category. But how much of this has to do with just different biochemical makeup, uh, biochemistry, so that uh, each group uh, needs needs a different type of food to be healthy? You follow what I'm saying? Um, yes, yes. I, I think that's... I, I really like what, what you're saying there. I'm a firm believer in, in our genetic makeup and, and what our DNA recognizes and you know, utilizes um, and all of that. And I really do think that that our traditional foods, um, we have a remembrance, you know, um, like I say, in our DNA. And we have a remembrance of the earth. And I think even as simple as community gardens, I think are an amazing way of healing because um, because being taken away from the earth um, you know, created a, a, a generations of trauma that we pass on to each other, I believe, genetically. Even. So even now for somebody, generations past, a couple generations, it hasn't been that long um, since we were put on reservations, for our people to, to really engage in their food, I think is really healing. Then to be able to actually, you know, harvest and utilize and ingest and incorporate those foods I think is very, very healing. There I has think our traditional foods are extremely healthy. I'm, you know, I'm aware of things that have been tested, you know, a, a conventional bean as opposed to a, uh, a heritage bean that was gifted to, to our garden um, had to be hundreds of years old. And they were grown out and tested at the University of Minnesota. And the traditional seeds were so much more nutrient-dense. It was really quite amazing. I imagine that it's very difficult for young people uh, or even indigenous people of of any age to resist the pressure of the larger society and the food that it pushes on them. Well, and I would say, I go so far as to say that it's, it's an addiction. When you can't resist 
the foods of today. We're talking about addiction, and if we look at health indices, not just natives now, we look at the general population, you know, the rates of obesity, the rates of cardiac disease, the rates of inflammation, you know, arthritis and those kinds of things. The food industry well knows what kinds of things we like to eat and how to keep us liking those things. And unfortunately, the combinations that they put together create um, create a, a bunch of ill people. Well, let, let me ask you this. As a, a Caucasian person, but I, I, I think uh, perhaps at least with a rudimentary level of respect for what indigenous people have been trying to bring to the equation here in the United States of America, okay? But as, as a Caucasian person, can I learn something from this as well? Could I, perhaps out of this conference, could there be some, something that informs my dietary choices that might help me be healthier, even though perhaps I didn't grow up with a lot of that food, even though it's not, uh, what, what was the ter- term you used, remembered by me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I think that you could. Um, I'm, you know, we're going to be talking again about um, indigenous ways and you know academic ways and you know what they have found out. But and so we're not. Um, I'm not sure that I can say we're talking you know to specific individuals and 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 individuals kinds of needs. But we're certainly talking about. Um, uh, improving native food systems, and I think when you improve native food systems, you improve systems for everybody. That's Lori Watso, chair of Seeds of Native Health, talking about this week's summit meeting about Native American nutrition. Scott? Thank you, Bill. We'll be back with more Minnesota Matters after this. Sometimes a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, the charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects, benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. Donate in Staples stores or learn more at StaplesForStudents.org. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. 
Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. As a founding member of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson has composed some of the most beloved popular American music of the last half century. This year, Brian and his band embark on a world tour to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the landmark album Pet Sounds. And they'll be here in Minneapolis at the Orpheum for a sold-out show on October 2nd. I recently spoke with Brian about the tour, the music, and how he came to make his Pet Sounds. Hi, Scott. It's Brian Wilson. Brian, how does it feel to be sharing Pet Sounds live with your fans around the world 50 years after it was released? It's a great a great honor to be able to present the album in its entirety, uh, duplicated exactly how it sounded on the record. My band members know exactly how to make it sound just like the, re- re- the actual original album. People can't believe it. They said, Brian, we can't tell the difference between the album and your, and your performance. I couldn't believe it. Considering how talented your band is at, at recreating the album, are you making new discoveries about the music as you play it live all these years later? Well, not really. I, I have, I, it takes me back to when I did the album, when, when I play God Only Knows. It takes me back to when Carl sang God Only Knows. And when I do Wouldn't It Be... Actually, my band member, Matt Jardine Elson, does Wouldn't It Be Nice. He sings that. It, what's the best part of playing live for you these days? The best part is when the music first begins, then I go, ah, I relax for a second. I feel all keyed up for about an hour, and then I relax and do the concert. Do you have stage fright? Oh, yeah, very much so. You mentioned Al Jardine just a moment ago. Of course, you're playing with Al and Blondie Chaplin. They're joining you in the amazing band for the shows. What does it mean to you to have them playing with you on stage? Well, they're great singers. Al Jardine is probably one of the greatest singers I've ever heard. And... Uh, Blondie Chaplin is absolutely great. I wanted to just go back a little bit before Pet Sounds and ask, how and when did you first realize that you had a gift for expressing yourself through music? I first learned that when I learned how to sing like the Four Freshmen. And what was your reaction to the sound uh, the first time that you and your brothers and cousin Mike and friend Al Jardine blended your voices together? Well, it was a thrill because I knew we were a family, first of all. We were a family, so our voices blended together like a family. So, you know, and Mike is our cousin, so he he was fantastic for bass singing and for lead singing. And our commercial singer, he was our very commercial singer. When you're playing these songs now, 50 years later, tell me a little bit about the emotion that you may feel. Well, I love to hear the band sing their harmonies. I get a good feeling off the off the harmonies, and I get a good feeling off singing with them. What song of yours are you proudest of, and why? Well, I'm proudest of God Only Knows, because it's a great melody and a great lyric, and Carl sang it beautifully, and I'm, I'm very proud of it. Considering how well-known you are as a vocal group with the Beach Boys, uh, was there pressure in the studio when you were all singing together to not blow it? No, no. Actually, we... I made sure that the guys sang right on key on the microphones. And, and they didn't feel any extra pressure to, to make sure that they sang on key? 
No, they didn't feel pressured at all. I made sure they sang good. I said, come on, guys, let's get this song right now. Let's get this right, you know. With the recent film Love and Mercy and you have a memoir coming out later this year, you've done a lot of looking back. What surprises you most about your life? Well, I'm most, mostly surprised about how the group form, got formulated uh, when we did Surfing and Surfing Safari. I, I That's my biggest moments in my life when we first started to become famous. Do you remember the first time you heard a Beach Boys song on the radio and what was your reaction? Yeah, Late 1961, November of 1961, on a station called KBLA, to the right side of the dial, and they played surfing, and they had a little contest. They said, vote, call in and vote for your favorite song this week, and surfing won. Surfing got the best. So they, it was called a pick to click, and they played surfing once every hour. I'd like to think you wrote some of those early songs while you were cruising the beach in a convertible. Did it really happen that way, or is that just wishful thinking on my part? No, I was driving around my neighborhood near my house, and a song on the radio came on called Tell It to the Birds and uh, by Dory, Dory Alpert. And I learned, the, the, the melody goes... And so I thought of I wrote Server Girl. Some of it in my car and then the rest of it at my house on the piano. What does make you happy these days? It makes me happy to hear some of the Beach Boys on the radio and uh, makes me happy to exercise and stuff like that. You were famously competitive with the Beatles, especially around the time of Pet Sounds. You're just about the only person I can think of that would actually be able to stand a chance competing with the Beatles. Why did you feel that sense of competition with them? Well, when I heard Rubber Soul, I was shocked. I couldn't believe how great that album was. It was a very good album. And I tried to, I was personally challenged to try to make a better album. And do you think that you did that? Uh, in some ways, yeah. I just wanted to say before we wrap things up here, I saw you a few years back perform God Only Knows with your band here in Minnesota. And you sang it so sweetly and with such vulnerability, you, you received a, a long ovation from the crowd. And that's a musical moment that I'll never forget. So for that and for so much more, I just, on behalf of all the folks who aren't lucky enough to be able to speak with you, I just wanted to thank you for all the beautiful music that you've given us for the last half century. Thank you. Thanks, God. Bye-bye. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. 
The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Minnesota is on a world stage this weekend with the playing of the 41st Ryder Cup at Hazeltine National Golf Club in Chaska. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm has spent some of his week there and gives us an example of just how big this event is. Scott, first of all, the crowds themselves have been and will continue to be huge at Hazeltine this week, all the way back to Tuesday's practice round and including practice rounds on Wednesday and Thursday. In addition to the large contingent of United States national reporters and Minnesota local journalists, the media tents full of reporters from England, Scotland, Ireland, Sweden, Germany, Spain, France, and more. Make no mistake, Minnesota is in the international spotlight this week. In fact, I sat down with BBC golf correspondent Ian Carter, who's based near Manchester, England, and spending this week in Minnesota. Well, I was here in 2009 for the PGA, so I, I managed to, to get into Minneapolis then and, and found it a really uh, engaging city. Um, I think the most uh, striking thing about this place, and I remember it from 2009, and it, and it came straight back to me when I got here, was just how friendly the people are. Um, it's, you know, it is extremely welcoming. Um, and, you know, obviously the hours that you have working a Ryder Cup, there's not that much time for, for socializing. I've been over to the, the Mile of America a couple of times, and that's about it this time. But, you know, you can just tell from the crowds here, uh, you know, when you're out on the golf course, you know, that it is a friendly place. Um, you know, obviously we're in a very partisan circumstance at the moment and America are desperate to win the Ryder Cup and, and the fans are desperate to see it but even so it's you know I, I, I do think that um, the, the people here are extremely welcoming very friendly. I thought uh, at least earlier in the week and maybe this changes now as you get into the weekend but it was overcast a little chilly and really windy it was almost as if it would be uh, in Europe, uh, some of those European courses. I mean, we only get to watch on TV the, those European, uh, you know, the, the the Open Championship and those things. But it, it reminded me, just looking out off the deck here, of uh, of maybe a European scene at times. Well, absolutely, and that was one of the most uh, striking things. The first time I, I walked out on the golf course, it felt very British. Never mind European. It yeah. felt felt very British. The trees are, are very familiar to us. Uh, the grass. You know, in terms of its type and, and that sort of thing is, is very, very, very um, similar to, to back home. And certainly the weather uh, earlier in the week was, was very similar to, a, to an autumn time at, at, at home or fall, as you would call it. Um, and, but I, to, to be honest, you know, that's how I, that's how I think of Ryder Cups. That's how it is. It is that kind of end of summer into autumn kind of event. So it feels very, very appropriate to me. What is the scope of this? So tell folks that live in Minnesota and are listening to this how much, uh, you know, just basically what you do in terms of uh, getting uh, news back. I know it's mostly golf-based, but do you talk about Minnesota some on some of your reports, and uh, how big of a scope is this for, for our state? Yeah, well, we're on air um, from first light to, to dark uh, covering this, this event, so there's a lot of time to talk about things. <laughs> And obviously the golf is very, very compelling. Uh, that's the nature of the Ryder Cup. That's why they give us the airtime 
for the Ryder Cup, unlike any other tournament. I mean, we do something similar for the Open Championship. But this is a huge, huge deal for us on, on BBC Radio. And of course, yeah, we'll be talking, we will be talking about Minnesota. I know our presenter, uh, John Inverdale, um, has taken time out this week to go to Paisley Park, have a look, you know, have a look there and pay homage to Prince. And yeah, as I say, we've been over to the Mall of America. We've, you know, we've, we've seen as many sites as, as we can, given the, the, the time restrictions that are on us this week. But, um, and, and as I say, I, I think we've all been made to feel very, very welcome. As we head into the weekend, let's talk some general golf things because we don't know how that weekend will unfold. But um, it looks like it's a, it's a pretty, couple of different decent storylines unfolding, and uh, Americans may be your favorites, but uh, it looks like this European group is determined too. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's in, you know, in, in all the build-up to it, I, I thought, thought this was a Ryder Cup that was very, very difficult to call. Um, I wrote a, a piece for the BBC website in which I said this is a Ryder Cup that America dare not lose. Uh, you know, it would be a record fourth successive defeat. It would be a ninth in 11. Um, and it would come after a, a, a period in which America turned around and said enough is enough. We have to change the way that we go about things. Those changes have come in. Phil Mickelson has had everything that he wanted out of it, um, you know, in terms of the, the captaincy, the setup, the um, dealings with the players, the inclusivity of the players, you know, all very, very important things in, in his eyes and things that have been missing as far as he's concerned in, you know, this period which has coincided with his Ryder Cup career of so many defeats. So, uh, you know, America have to win this one, but that doesn't mean to say that they will. And Europe uh, have, have a strong captain, they have a strong team, they have the, the opportunity to go for four in a row and they find that very enticing as well. Thanks so much. Enjoy your weekend here in Minneapolis. Thank you very much indeed. My thanks to Ian Carter from the BBC for joining me on Minnesota Matters. Scott? Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.